Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you. One day. One day, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem. A rich young leader came running to Jesus. He got down on his knees and asked Jesus a question. Good teacher, what do I need to do to live with you forever in heaven when I die? Good teacher, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. I believe you are from God, teacher. Hmm. Well, to answer your question, you know the Ten Commandments, right? You must not murder. You must not be unfaithful to your wife. You must not steal. You must not tell lies. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Oh, yes, teacher. I've obeyed all these commandments since I was a kid. Is that all? Jesus looked at the man with a smile. He loved this young man. Jesus really wanted this man to follow him and could see what was holding him back. Well then, there's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell everything you own and give your money to the poor so you will have treasure in heaven. Then, I want you to come follow me and be one of my disciples. When the man heard this, his face fell. Instead of saying yes to Jesus' offer, he walked away feeling sad. He didn't want to give up his stuff. It would be easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You can't get there holding on to the things you love here on earth. You have to let go of the things on earth to grab on to the things of heaven. The disciples wondered, who in the world could be saved then? Isn't that too hard for anyone to do? With your own human strength, it is impossible. But with God's strength, everything is possible. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, said, We've given up everything to follow you, Jesus. Yes, you have. And I promise you that everyone who has given up everything to follow me and spread the good news will receive a reward a hundred times better. In life on earth, you'll face hard times and suffering, but you'll get eternal life. Those who are the greatest now will be the least important then. Those who seem the least important now will be the greatest in heaven. Well, I had a privilege to grow up in Romania. And I remember um, in my middle school, I had a friend of mine whose family was well connected to the Communist Party and to the system, and uh, we've been together through the school uh, system. There's no nothing else but uh, state schools there. And um, he was, at some point, he started to be intrigued about my faith because I was kind of the weird guy, you know, the only one in the class that believed in, in faith, in Christ, in eternal life. And as we went to high school, I said to him, um, this is what I believe. I believe that there is a God who made all of these things. I do not believe that this is just here and now. I believe that our souls are eternal and we are going to continue to live after we die. 
I know that this is not what the party and what we believe as a country, because we were Marxists, but I said, I believe that someday is coming when people will live eternally, either in eternal life or in eternal death. And he started to ask me about hell. And I could see in his eyes that he started to fear. And I think it was just a calculation for him. What if I am right? So in high school, I, start, I started to say to him, would you come to church with me? I shared the gospel. He, he said, no, you know, second time, no, third time, no. At some point, he said, okay, I'll, I'm coming with you. He came to church. Um, and I took him to uh, a nice church that I knew that the gospel is going to be clearly preached. He heard the gospel. Uh, after that, he had a lot of questions, so we had many discussions. I know that he went to church even without me after that. And at some point, he came to me and said, I, I think I believe in Jesus now. And he started to talk with me in religious language. He will say, God bless you, Daniel. And he will make the sign of the cross and and say, I, I have prayed for you, or something like that. And I was glad that at least he started to follow Jesus. But from my perspective, and only God knows our hearts, from my perspective, I felt nothing has changed in his life. He went through life, and he is still my friend, but I don't think that he is more than a cultural Christian. What I will call a cultural Christian, somebody who might have the language, who might even mention the name, maybe goes to church on Easter sometimes, Christmas maybe, maybe sing a Christmas carol, make the sign of the cross, say a prayer. But I really am not sure that there is anything beyond that. Some people want salvation just as we want a life insurance. Do you have life insurance? Oh, yeah, I have to. I must, yeah. So just in case I die, I can leave something behind. And some people do the same thing spiritually. They say, what if this is true? What if the whole thing about Christ, the whole thing about Christianity is true? Can I just do something minimal and make sure that just in case it's true, and if I die, I will not go to hell? I take Christ. I put Him in the safe. It's my eternal life policy. And I just put it there, leave it, and forget it. But in case it's true, it's there. I have it. And we are going this uh, Lent season as we approach the Holy Week and the Easter through encounters. It's a sermon series on encounters with Jesus. We look at different people that encounter Christ. And this morning we are going to look at the cultural Christian encounters Jesus. That's why I will say the cultural Christian encounters Jesus. is in Mark chapter 10. And I want us to look at three things. What, what is the problem with a cultural Christian? They still have something that they want to fix in their life. What is Jesus' solution to that problem? What is Jesus answering? How is he coming to answer that problem? And finally, how does the cultural Christian respond? So what is the problem with a cultural Christian? A cultural Christian is from the outside. He looks and he seems to have it all. Look at this young, rich ruler. You might say, well, I'm not rich, so the sermon is not for me. I can tune out. No, you cannot tune out because it's not only, it doesn't matter if you are young or old. And I, I will say it doesn't matter if it's somebody here that is poor or rich. It's not about 
Anything else but salvation. Not what you have, it's about what you need to have. And from an outside perspective, even this young, rich ruler, he seems to have it all. He was professionally accomplished. He was at the top of his accomplishment. He was a ruler. He was an administrator, maybe like the mayor of Grand Rapids at a young age, the youngest mayor, the youngest maybe representative. Morally, he was somebody with a good character, somebody who could stand up. He was upright. Nobody had things to say about his behavior. Religiously, he was the ideal Jew, I will say, the ideal Jew, the ideal Pharisee. Why do I say Pharisee? Because the Sadducees, remember the, the wording, Sad to see, sad to see, sad to see. They, they don't believe in eternal life. Only the Pharisees believed in eternal life. So we can say that he was the ideal person that might come to even a church. Can you imagine somebody coming to church like that? And financially, by the way, he was secure. Financially, he was all set. He had great health, wealth. He must have been like in today's maybe a billionaire, young Billionaire, maybe the youngest billionaire. So he had fame, and he had money, he had power, he had good character, and yet he wants Jesus' help. That's fantastic about this guy. He is a seeker, somebody that will come to church and say, Brothers and sisters, what do I need to do? What do I lack? I am trying my best. And he comes running. Nobody was running with any power, any authority, any kind of leverage in that society. They were not running. And yet he comes running to Jesus. Jesus is walking with his disciples and he comes running. And not only that, he is kneeling down. The verb there is that he is kneeling and he grabs Jesus' feet, kind of like this, and, and push, pushes himself against his knees and says, Good teacher, something is missing in my life. Something is missing. He is a seeker seeking answers from the right person. And he starts by saying to Jesus, good teacher. In a way, he had it all until now. When he opens his mouth to Jesus, the first word is good teacher. Good teacher. For us, it might not sound bad, but in that time, nobody else but God is good. And Jesus immediately corrects him. He says, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Nobody else is good. You see, in other cultures, in our culture, in the Greek culture, you can say, this person is good. This person, you know, this person is good because of this or that. But in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you do not say that somebody is good because there is only one absolute. There is only one good person. And that is God. That's why we sing. The psalm says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. We are not good. We are not good. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament, in the psalms, everywhere else, God is looking for somebody who is to be good, for somebody who is looking for Him. And yet nobody is good. Only God is good. Only God is good. In what way is He good? Only He is the Holy One and the Perfect One. He created something good. Our nature, our creation that we, we enjoy is good, but it's only good because a good creator made it. There is nothing intrinsic good in the creation. It is a good that comes from God who made it. 
And if it's anything good in human life, the Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Everything that is good in life comes from God. Only God is good. And even the good news is not for good people, for bad people. You know that only if you are bad? That's the first thing in evangelism. You, you, you need to make sure that the person that you share the gospel with feel that they are bad. If they think that they are good, there's no way. Where, where do you go with the gospel? But the prevalent assumption in our culture is that we are good. Remember the movie The Sound of Music? And I remember somebody mentioned that, you know, in that movie when she finds out that she's going to marry a young, I mean, rich person, she starts to sing, I must have done something good. I must have done something good, that God blesses me like this, that God blesses me with such a rich person to marry. I must have done something good. You see, the cultural Christian is a wide spectrum. It can be somebody like Richard Dawkins, who is an atheist, and yet he says, culturally, he says, I am a Christian. Even an atheist who says that God is a delusion, he says, culturally, I'm a Christian. So it can be somebody here, as white as here. Why he says that? He says, because I have many friends who are culturally Jews or culturally Muslims. So in one sense, he says, yeah, I grew up in a culture, in a culture that was steeped in Christianity. The, the, he is British. You know, the British culture is steeped in Christianity. So it can be somebody here or it can be somebody closer to us. Still a cultural Christian, somebody who says, I am baptized, I made my profession of faith, I belong to this church, I pray in this church, I pray to God, I even serve in this food pantry, I, I am part of the service to the community, and I'm a good person. You can be here in the church, you grew up in the church, maybe you are here because your wife brought you, or maybe because your parents told you to come here, it's good for you to be here, and it's not bad to be in the church. But you are still not necessarily attached to the head of the church, who is Jesus Christ. You have attachment to the people. On this horizontal, you are connected. This is your social group, social club. But what matters is the horizontal. Are you connected with Christ? And, and, and the question is, are you saved? And if you ask people, are you saved? They will say, yeah, I think I am saved. And by the way, they will say, only bad people need salvation. Why would, you, why would you ask me? I'm a good person. We have these international nights, and one is coming this Tuesday night. And I invite you to come and bring your friends. But the international nights, uh, we started in the fall, and the first one was the Cuban night. It just happened that it was Cuban night, and some of you were here to sing for us. And we learned about Cuba. And in many cultures, in many cultures, good is defined differently. What for us is good in our culture, you will see that in Cuba is different. But anyway, in that night, one church member brought a friend who was here for the first time in his life. He was a young professional. He's a young professional. And for the first time in his life, he came to church on that international night. He loved the food. He loved to meet friends. He thought, are they going to kick me out? What are they going to say to me? He's never been in a church before. And he came to learn, and he was surprised. Then he came to what we call Tuesday nights. We still have what we call skeptics. Welcome. 
we kind of read together and answer and discuss the major objections to the Christian faith. He came to one of those, and in one of those skeptics' welcome nights, he, uh, he was asked by one of our church members, says, you know, so why don't you come on Sunday? Okay, you came to the international nights, you came to skeptics' welcome. The next thing will be, come, come on Sunday, why don't you come? And then he said, nobody invited me. Nobody invited me. That was his answer. And then the person said, okay, I'm inviting you. Come on Sunday. A few Sundays ago, uh, he felt that he needs to come to church on Sunday. He went on Google on Saturday night and said, how do I dress up for church? And he found the church is formal. So he came in a suit and a tie because it's, it's formal. He said, I don't want to be kicked out of the church, you know, because I don't dress properly. So he came to church and still the same thing. He was thinking and he says, are they going to welcome me? Are they going to check me out? Are they going to interview me? Kind of, you know, ask me the basic questions of why I'm here. He felt that the church is something that is so secret, so kind of clicky, so, you know, kind of a country club that it's hard to get in. So he came to church. His background is Chinese. And this China night is, it just happens that his family bought a restaurant, which is Chinese, and they will provide the food this Tuesday night. I invite you to come and at least enjoy the food. He is still a seeker. He is still somebody who looks for Christ. And hopefully our prayer is that not only he, but every other seeker will find a time when they will encounter Christ. One day we'll understand that it's not about us. It's not about the church being perfect. It's not about us accepting or welcoming people. But it is about Christ who has time, who welcomes everybody. This young man, rich young ruler, he came to Christ and he had a question. He felt that although he seems from the outside that he has everything, there was still something missing in his life. I am missing something. And he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, I need eternal life. I don't have it. It's someplace, and I I want to have it. What must I do to get it? I can get almost anything I want in life. We don't know if he was married, but almost any, any mother would have been safe to say, go and marry that guy. Look at him, you know, morally, religiously, financially. Professionally, he has realized. And he says, I am still, something is missing. I, I want to enjoy God's presence. And for the Jews, eternal life is not only like you live eternally, but it's also some, some sort of a quality of life. It is life that God gives. God gives you eternal life here in this life. And you, you started here and you forever will live with Him. And that's what I will explain to my friend in childhood. It is living forever, and if you want, you live young. I don't know how we are going to be in heaven, young or old, but we are not going to age. We are not going to decay. The new bodies, the resurrected bodies that we are going to have in heaven are going to be ours forever. There's going to be more pain or illness or broken bones or burns or anything else. And he says, I want this eternal life. In other words, he says, I want to be saved. I want salvation. I want Christ. I want something that I am still missing. And Christ goes immediately and says, well, do you keep the commandments? Uh, And then he starts, you shall not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Shall not give false testimony. 
you shall not defraud. You should honor your father and your mother. Mother, it's interesting that Jesus introduces a change. No, that one should have been, you shall not covet. It's the second table of the law that relates to relationships on a horizontal. And he says, you shall not defraud. And he looks at Jesus and he says, all of this, Lord, I have kept since I was a boy. If somebody were to ask my friend from childhood, hey, are you a Christian? He would say, yeah. I had this friend, Danny, in my childhood, and I went, I mean, since, since I was a boy. What he wants to say, as long as you look at me from the outside, I, I am perfect. I kept the law. And Jesus looks at him and loved him. Because he was honest, but also, in a, in a way, I think Jesus saw beyond the eyes. He saw it in his soul. And Jesus loved him because he said, what must I do? I just want you to know, it doesn't matter where you are, if you feel that you are completely in Jesus' arms today, or if you are still kind of a cultural Christian, you can look at each other today when you go home and say, Jesus loves you too. No matter who we are, Jesus loves you. And Jesus loves you because you are here in his church. And he says, what must I do? What must I do? It's another wrong word. First, he calls Jesus good. And Jesus corrects him and says, there's only one good. There's no, nobody is good. Everybody is bad except God. But then he says, what must I do? Is there something that I can do? I can do everything? How do I earn salvation? Having eternal life for him is like having a life insurance. It's exactly like that. Can I buy this policy and put it in my shelf, put it on my shelf? Can I add to everything I have accomplished in my life? I want to make sure that this last thing is eternal life. And I'm all set after that. And what is Jesus' solution to his problem? Jesus loves him, looks at him and says, there's one thing you lack. I will tell you the truth. I love you, but if you really push me, you think that you are really, you have it all together. But there's one thing that you lack. Many people go through life and they, can, they think that they have one objection to Christianity. For some of them, it's like intellectual. They say, I cannot believe that a good God, and we had that discussion also, as a skeptic, in other words, skeptic who says, I cannot believe that God will send people to hell. How can that happen? I, cannot, I mean, I cannot accept that. I cannot accept that God will allow so much suffering in our world. I look around, and there's so much suffering, natural disaster, disease. Other people, even deeper, goes deeper, and they say, I deal with a problem that it is too big for me to be solved. Now, he becomes a, a personal objection. He says, you know, that's what I struggle. If it is one thing that I need, is like... How do I solve this problem? I don't know how to solve. Or maybe others will say, I have a habit and I cannot shake it. I am here on Sunday. I maybe even go to a Christian school or work for a Christian company on Monday. But in my sexual life, there's no way I can let Jesus control that. That's my prerogative. In my dealing with people, I am so moral. In business, I'm moral, but don't touch my money. I decide. These are my, I earn. In my career, I am at the top of my career, but Jesus never helped me. I did it. I work hard for it. 
I arrived here because of my hard work. So why would he tell me what to do, what sort of a work to do? Or if you are even more honest, as a culture Christian, I say, you know, there's something in my life. It's called sin, but I enjoy it so much, I don't want to give it up. I just, it's just too much joy for me to do this. And Jesus says there's one thing. And one thing in your life and one thing in his life. In his life, it just happened that this one thing was something else. Something specific. Something that nobody else in the Bible had the same problem in the same degree, to the same degree. No other, no other people or no other person received the same command from Christ. This is a very specific command for one person. He says, go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You might think it's about selling. But Jesus in the end says, come, follow me. Will you come follow me? And I know you will, you will have a problem with your wealth because that's, that's your God. That's your major idol. And in a way, Jesus shows you and him the problem that you never thought that you have. He never thought that his wealth will be a problem. Why? Because in the entire Old Testament, and even today, we believe that if somebody is blessed financially, somebody is wealthy, he must have done something good. God shows him favor. If you are wealthy, you are favored by God. God loves you. God is pleased with you. And Jesus says, this is your problem. You have something that is one thing more important than anything else, more important than me. And that's what I want you to give up. And how does he respond? He looks at Jesus. And the Bible says that his face fell. At this, the man's face fell. Up to this point, he was ready to go, to do, to accomplish. He said, what do I need to do? Lord, I am submitting myself. But when Jesus says, go and do this, and then come and follow me. Become one of my disciples. Exactly the same command he gave to Andrew, to, to Peter, to John. And they dropped everything. Even Levi, remember the tax collector, he dropped, Jesus says, come follow me. And he drops everything and follows Jesus. But this young guy, he's not ready. And the Bible says, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad. As far as I know, this is the only person in the Bible who goes to Jesus honestly, seeking an answer, and he leaves sad. He went away sad because he had great wealth. The Bible says, Jesus says, what will somebody give for, what would you give for your soul? What does it profit if you have the entire world, but you lose your soul? He puts the entire world on a scale with your soul, and he says, your soul is so much heavier. And he doesn't get that. He is good with finances in so many ways, but with this calculation, he's missing the point. He thinks that in, on a scale, in a balance, his wealth is more important than his soul. He walks away from the offer of eternal life. <clears throat> we don't know what happened with him later. 
Some people, interesting, I heard a commentator, and he said, is this man a Lazarus? Maybe he later becomes a believer. Maybe, maybe later, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say it. But what's interesting is he is not named. He doesn't have a name. Do you know his name? Three gospels mention this story. None of the gospels mention his name. And if he was that wealthy, and he, if he was a ruler in a Sanhedrin, he must have been a very popular person. I'm not sure what popular person you think of, young popular, but yeah. And these are some of the arguments that he could have been Lazarus, you know. Uh, we don't know, but just listen to the arguments. Mary, Lazarus' sister, pours out expect, expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. And then she wipes it off with her hair. That's Mary, Lazarus' sister. So she comes from a rich, wealthy family. Then many Jews from Jerusalem, when Lazarus dies, even three days after, they are still with Mary and Martha in Bethany because they came from Jerusalem. And the wording used there for the Jews, some Jews from Jerusalem, is very select group of Jews. So he must have been in these circles of well-to-do people, people with power and influence. And then is one expression that Jesus uses both for Martha and for him. When Martha is arguing with Jesus, Jesus looks at her and says, Martha, 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 one thing you lack. And to him he says, one thing you lack, Martha. One thing you lack, rich young man. It's the same expression. And finally, the fourth one there is that Jesus loved this guy. And when Martha and Mary send the word Tell the master that the one, that's, that's the expression, that the one you love is sick. So maybe Jesus' love continued after this encounter. We don't know. We don't know if he's Lazarus, but it can be you. It can be me. What do you love so much that you feel you can live without? What do you love so much? What is it one thing? Even you, maybe you say, I'm a Christian for 50 years, but... The question today is, what do you love so much that you feel that you cannot live without? What is the dream that you say, I have this dream, and I don't want anybody to interfere with it? I need to get this job. I need to buy this car or house. I need to marry this person. And I have a dream, and I don't want you, Lord, to tell me anything. I will do anything to get my dream fulfilled. So the question is, can you surrender your dream to Christ? Christ goes for the heart. He says, if you want one thing, sell everything. But I know you have a lot of wealth. I want you to follow me even if you are so wealthy. And he says, no. What do you do with Christ? He tells, give me that one thing. And you know, I don't know what it is, but I hope that the Holy Spirit speaks to you what that one thing is that you still need to surrender to Christ. And I hope that you do not leave this place without Jesus. Because the Bible says that He Himself, is not, He's not a policy, He's a person. He is your eternal life. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that... Uh,